You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good, thank you. Let me just share one or two things with you up front this morning. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and go ahead and just get to Exodus chapter 6. Um, Greg, help me with his name. Your wife just gave it to me and I, you know, Clint Clifford. Clint Clifford, Clifford was uh, tragically killed Thursday night. He was uh, the church plant expert for the North American Mission Board. You've probably, unless you've been on the mission uh, committee here, you probably have never heard of him. But he worked very closely with us as a church, with the missions committee, and um, uh, just leaves a wife and some young children, and it's... It's so sad. So if the Lord brings that to your mind, keep that family in your prayers. And also Ken Johns, who is a member here, that's Sherry Dunn's dad. They took him into surgery this morning for a lung transplant. Uh, Lungs became available. They got him to the hospital. And as far as I know, he's probably in surgery right now. So keep that in your prayers as well. And next Sunday, keep in your prayers the 22nd. Uh, Dr. Dees will be here, be preaching. We're going to burn the note next Sunday. Big day, good day. 50 years, uh, 50 years ago, this church was planted, and we're going to be out of debt. We've not been in debt for 50 years. It just seems like it. Um, but we're going to just celebrate, and we've got him coming back, and I know you're excited about that, and I want you to be here to uh, hear him and just give thanks to the Lord that day. Uh, Several years ago in the New York Times, journalist uh, Alex Stone carried an article about uh, Bush International, Houston International, uh, the airport down in uh, Houston, Texas. Huge airport. I don't know if you've ever been through. It's one of the most confusing places to go through for me. Uh, It is a confusing airport, isn't it, brother? Uh, You never know which direction you're supposed to go when you get off the plane. Uh, Well, they had complaint after complaint after complaint about people waiting on luggage. Uh, Believe it or not, they just, and they were, they had so many complaints that all of the executives there who run Bush International got together and said, we've got to solve this. We've just got so many problems with people getting their luggage and the complaints and all that, you know, the mail that's coming in, the emails and all the people upset about it. So they decided, well, the way you solve that is to hire more baggage handlers So they hired all these new baggage handlers to help move the luggage along, and uh, the complaints still kept coming in. Now, they brought down their wait time to an industry average. The industry average across the country is that you will wait uh, approximately eight minutes for your bag when you fly in somewhere. Makes no difference. Now, some places you'll get it a lot quicker. Other places, it takes a lot longer, but the industry average is eight minutes. They got it down below the eight minutes, Uh, Bush International, but people still complained, and they didn't know what to do. The complaints were still coming in, so they met back together and said, what do we do? And this is what they did. They decided to move the gates further away from the baggage claim area. So as they moved the, the, the gates further away from the baggage claim area, they had to walk long. They did not reduce the time that it took the luggage to get there, but it increased the time that it took the passenger to get from the gate to the luggage. And you know what happened? All of the complaints fell. 
Nobody complained anymore. In that same article, Alex Stone interviewed Richard Larson, who is operations researcher at MIT and is the world's leading expert on waiting in lines. Can you, do you believe somebody's got a PhD in waiting in line? Now, I had my PhD was 170 something pages, had to be 150 pages. I, I can't imagine writing more than a paragraph on that. Are you waiting in line? Yes. I, well, what's it like? It stinks. Okay. Well, there's the paper. PhD. There you go. Right there. This guy's an expert, the world's leading expert waiting in line. He said this it's the psychology of queuing. It's more important than the statistics of the weight itself. Essentially, we tolerate occupied time. For example, walking to baggage claim, far better than unoccupied time. Give us something to do while we wait and the wait becomes endurable. Well, that may be true at MIT for Richard Larson, but let me tell you, in the sixth chapter of Exodus, it was not true of the Hebrews. They're waiting for God to move. Now, God's not waiting for them to move. Uh, They're waiting on God to move. God had sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and the situation got immediately worse. They're now having to go get their own straw to make bricks, and the quota of bricks has to be the same. So they're having to get up, basically, and work half the night to get the straw to the place where they make the bricks and then work all day making the same quota of bricks, and it's just breaking them. And on top of that, they are being beaten by these taskmasters, by these foremans, by these overseers. They are beating the Jews now, and so the situation is God is on pause And these Hebrews can't figure out, God, why aren't you doing what you said you were going to do? Why aren't you delivering us? Why Why are you waiting? Why are you not moving and doing something? Now, every single one of us have been in a position that understands that. We've been in a position before where we're waiting for God to move. We're desperate for God to move. And by the way, let me just say this. By the time you get to the place in a situation that you turn to God in prayer for God to do something, you are at the desperation point. Amen. Because we don't go to God first. We try to do everything we can in our own ingenuity and our own power, our own strength to bring about some kind of resolution. And the, the time we turn to the Lord is when we're at the point of absolute frustration and we want God to do what? God, this is what I need. I need it now. Immediately. At this point, time has run out. I'm at the point of desperation. Well, let me tell you, God will often put us on pause because in the moments when God waits to move, it implies, now listen to me carefully, it implies God wants to show you his wisdom in your waiting. The wisdom of God can be seen in the midst of, of your waiting. You say, when I, listen, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm waiting on something from a doctor's office and it's about to drive me nuts and I've got to have an answer from it. I'm waiting on a financial situation and we are in desperate straits in, in the midst of this finance. I'm waiting on God. I'm to the place I've got to declare a major and I don't know what direction my life is going to go. I'm, I have no clue what I'm interested in or what I want to do for the rest of my life. And all of these, we're waiting for God to do something. 
I was caught for 30 minutes Thursday flying around Birmingham in the midst of that crazy storm. And uh, in, in the midst, we were just circling, circling Birmingham. Four times that guy tries to land. And back there in my mind, I'm saying, give it up. You know, stop it. Go do something. And we're just waiting, waiting, waiting. And the wait ended up in Huntsville. It send you off to Huntsville, you know. That's the place you want to go. So, uh, you know, we get in these situations. God, we're just hung up. I'm hung up here <laughs> over a storm for 30 minutes. Would you please do something and do something fast? Uh, okay, let's send you to Huntsville. But in the waiting, God wants to show you something. It's in that waiting period that God wants to show you something about two things. Number one, I want you to see that when God puts us on pause and we are waiting on him to move, he gives us wisdom about his person. God wants to show you something in the waiting about who he is. Now, let's go to this text, and let me back you up into chapter 5, verse 23, because chapter 6, verse 1, is the second time that God is sending Moses to Pharaoh. The first time he sends him to Pharaoh, and he says, go in there, tell Pharaoh to let my people go three days in the wilderness so that they can worship me. So Moses goes in, and he does that. He says, listen, God said, let his people go so they can go three days uh, and worship him. And uh, Pharaoh looks at him and says, no. And I'm going to tell you for the Hebrews, because Moses had already told the Hebrews, God has heard you. God's going to let you go. The Hebrews fall apart. And now Moses falls apart. And you have to ask the question, why? Because God had already told Moses, Pharaoh is going to say no. He's already told Moses that. He's already instructed Moses that, listen, when you go to Pharaoh, he's going to say no to this. You see, this is part of our problem. We will hear portions of what God says, but we will, we will tune out or we don't catch the other part of what God says. And listen, wisdom comes when you listen to all that God says. That's where wisdom is. And that's what I want you to keep remembering through all of this. God, in the waiting, will show you wisdom about his person. So here's Moses now. And he comes to God, and look at what he says to the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 23, ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name. Now watch this. This is why you need a Bible, because I'm going to show you something in this verse. Pretty fascinating. To speak in your name, he has done harm. He says, Lord, ever since I came to Pharaoh and said, let God's people go, he hasn't done anything but harm the people. He's made it worse. The situation is horrible. Second part of that, listen to what he says. And you have not delivered your people at all. Now I'm going to show you something in the Hebrew here. There's a word in the Hebrew and the word is not Saul. Not Saul which means delivered, not Saul. He uses it four times in this part of a sentence. Look at the statement, verse 23, and that's the word delivered. You, that's the word delivered. Have not delivered, delivered is the word delivered. Your people at all, at all is the word delivered. So that in the Hebrew, he literally says, Delivered, delivered, you have not delivered, your people delivered. Now, do you think Moses is trying to say something to God in that? 
He's trying to say, you haven't delivered, you haven't delivered, you haven't delivered, you haven't delivered. That's the one thing you said you were going to do. And you have not delivered them. But now they are just simply here waiting on all of this. They're just waiting for you to act, and you're not acting. Chapter 6, verse 1, look at what comes next. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, by the way, now he's just speaking to to, uh, Moses right here. He says, for under compulsion, he'll let them go. And under compulsion, he'll drive them out of the land. Now that's going to happen. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, now I want you to notice four times in seven verses, God is going to make identification of himself. He says, I am the Lord. That word there, if you look at it in the text, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. It is the name Yahweh. I am the Lord. If you come down now in that, uh, in that passage to verse 6, he's going to say it a second time, I am the Lord. And then in the middle of verse 7, I am the Lord. And at the end of verse 8, I am the Lord. Now, these are the verses we're going to look at because this is where God's going to show him something about himself. And then the second part's going to be about God's plan. Look at this. He starts, he, he encases it. He ensconces it. He bookends this whole thing with the statement, I am the Lord. And he closes it with, I am the Lord. And twice in the middle of this statement, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Now, God, if you think Moses was trying to get something across to God in 523, now God's trying to get something across to Moses. And what he's doing is he's saying, you understand this, I am the Lord. Now he's going to come, and I want you to understand what he's going to do. He's going to come, and he's going to talk about his past revelation, and then he is going to turn, uh, and he's going to talk about the present tense. He's going to talk about the present identification of what's going on. Now watch this, the past and the present. By the way, let me get, give you a side note. The name Yahweh is the, is the verb of being in Hebrew. I am. That's the verb of being. It has a past tense, present tense, and future tense in the one word. Fascinating. I can tell y'all are blown away. Uh, it's fascinating. So God comes in all of this, and he's going to talk about his past revelation. Now look at verse 2. Uh, God spoke further to Moses and said, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. And the best that we can understand what El Shaddai means is that he is God who is sufficient. I am the all-sufficient God. I am God Almighty. That's who I am. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, that's the second part. I'll come to that in a moment. But look at this past tense. He comes and he says in the past tense, I appeared, past tense, to Moses, uh, to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob. And when I appeared to them, I appeared to them as El Shaddai, God Almighty, the all-sufficient one. Now, look at how God appeared to them as the all-sufficient. He appears to Abraham as the one who is all-sufficient in the midst of your personal inadequacy. 
He couldn't father a child. What was the one thing he wanted to do? He wanted a boy. He wanted a son. He wanted to have a son since, you know, the whole time I suppose he'd been married, but this starts out at 75 years of age. God waits 25 years. God doesn't do anything for Abraham for 25 years. Time's clipping by. I can't imagine it's 75, but much less 100 so that when they have a baby, Abraham is 100 and his wife is 90. God waited all that time to say, you see, am I not really sufficient that at 100 years of age, you can father? She gets pregnant at 90 years of age and he's 100 And God said, I told you all along, I am El Shaddai, the God who is sufficient in the midst of your inadequacies. She couldn't have a child. He couldn't have a child. God comes and says, I'm sufficient to do it. And when he does it, that leaves no question who was in the midst of this whole thing. God caused it to happen. Now, if that happened to me, God would have to keep me alive. At that point, if I had a child now, God would have to keep me alive. I think I'd just end it all and say goodbye, cruel world. Here you go. Now, look, that's, that's Abraham. Look at, look at what he does with Isaac. Now, here's Isaac. He says, I'm the, I, I appeared to him. I told him, I am, I am El Shaddai. I'm God Almighty. I'm all sufficient in the midst of your helplessness. Now, I can't take you back to Genesis chapter 26. I'd love to do it. But Genesis chapter 26, powerful chapter of when Abimelech runs Isaac out of Gerar, tells him to leave, get out from here. And so he leaves and he's out in the wilderness. And the only thing that he knows to do is to go back where his father, Abraham, had dug wells. Every place that Abraham had dug wells, the Philistines had come and covered them up. And so he's out there and they get to the first place and he digs where his father had dug a well and sure enough, they hit water and here come the people of Gerar and they run him off from there. And so he goes to the next place and he digs a well there where his father Abraham had dug and again, here come these people and they run him off from there. He's just in a helpless situation. He's got to have water and every time he hits water, he gets run off from the place. Somebody else takes over the well. And they run him off, and he's got family, and he's got uh, flocks, and he's got children. He, what am I going to do? And so he goes to a third place, and the, it happens all over again, all the way down until he gets to a place called Beersheba. And there in Beersheba, where Abraham was, he, he lands his family there, and he digs a well there, and God appears to him. Now, listen, this doesn't happen over a week's time. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to turn back, and I'm going to read to you what the Lord says to him back there. He gets there, shows up in Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him in the same night, and he said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Don't fear. I'm with you. You think you're helpless. You're not helpless. I'm here. I'm all sufficient. I'll bless you and multiply your descendants and from, for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and he called on the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there and Isaac's servants dug wells there and guess what? They hit water again. That boy never digs that he doesn't hit water. Every single time he hits water. But he's been helpless in all of that to hold on to it until God shows up and says, okay, now. I'm with you. I'm here. 
And this is going to be where you stay. This is where I wanted to get you to. God was maneuvering him all along the way. And he says, I want you to see that in my moving you and moving you and moving you and moving you, and you finally get where I want you to be, you're going to look back and see, I'm all sufficient. I've taken care of you in the midst of your helplessness. Now here comes Jacob. Jacob in the midst of the unknown. God says, I am the all-sufficient one. He never knew what was going to happen in his life. He stole from his father the birthright. He made his brother angry. When his, mom, when his dad figured out what had happened, he said, you better get out of here because your brother is going to kill you. You've got to get out of here. And so he runs. He doesn't know the future. He has no idea what's out there. He runs, to his, he, he runs to his mother's brother, who is Laban. He is the last of the red-hot swindlers. I mean, he shows up at his uncle's house, looks at his uncle's daughter, and falls madly in love with her. And Laban looks at him and says, you work for seven years for me, and I'll let you have her in marriage. And so he works for seven years for that girl. He gets married. He doesn't see her. She's got on, you know, the seven veils of the sultan of the whatever, and she goes into the marriage tent, and that night, they consummate the marriage, and the next morning, he pulls the veil off. It's the oldest sister of Rachel, and he comes out hot, and Laban says, well, buddy, that's our custom. Didn't you know that? You know, aren't you family? Didn't you know that? That's our custom. We, we don't marry off anybody until we start with the oldest first. If you want, Rachel, work seven more years. He didn't know about the future. He worked seven more years. Laban takes him, uses him, abuses him for all he can. And so he takes these, his, his two wives now. He takes Leah and he takes Rachel and they sneak off and try to get away from Laban. Laban catches up. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Is Laban going to kill me, you know, for sneaking out on him? Laban lets him go. Esau finds out he's coming. Esau brings 400 men. They're riding down to find his brother who stole the birthright from him. He doesn't know what's going to happen. God deals in the midst of all of that. God keeps proving he's all sufficient in the midst of all this stuff. Rachel, his beloved, dies, giving birth to Benjamin in Bethlehem. Then his, his son, the one that he loved so much, listen, Joseph was, all he knew was that wild animals had gotten a hold of him and torn him apart. He had nothing left but the coat that gave him. This man did not know what tomorrow held. He lived facing an unknown future until his sons come back in the midst of a famine and say, listen, they have down in Egypt taken our brother Simeon, put him in jail, and will not let him go unless we bring this baby boy right here, Benjamin, down there. And he said, you can't do it. You've bereaved me of all my children. Simeon is no more. Joseph is no more. And you want to take this baby boy from Rachel away from me? And that's exactly what they have to do. And little did Jacob know that he was going to go down to Egypt and he was not only going to get Benjamin back and Simeon back, but he was going to get Joseph back. And they were going to put him in the greenest pastures you have ever seen where his whole family will flourish there in Goshen. And God is saying, I'm all sufficient. I've been taking care of you all this time. That's the past tense of God's name. I am the God. I am, all, I am God Almighty, the all-sufficient one who has taken care of you, Abraham, in your inadequacies. You, Isaac, in your helplessness. You, Jacob, in the unknown future with all that you've got to face and you have no idea how you'll do it. God's saying that to you. 
that in the midst of all that you face right now, waiting on him, he's trying to show you the wisdom of who he is. He is God Almighty. All sufficient for everything that comes up in your life. Now watch because he's going to turn to Moses and he's going to turn to this present tense. And he comes and he says, as God Almighty, that's how I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 3, I've only gotten through half of verse 3. So let's pick up the other half of it. But by my name, Yahweh, Lord, Jehovah, I did not make myself known to them. What he's doing is he's making this identification here. This identification now, God says, this is who I've identified myself as to you. I am Yahweh. Now, I've not told them that. I didn't tell Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I've told you that, Moses. At the burning bush, I told you, I am that I am. Now, let me just show you a little something here for just a moment. I've been teaching preachers out at the seminary all week in a D-men seminar on text-driven preaching, and part of a hermeneutic when you come to Scripture, how do you interpret? Part of it is understanding that there is a hermeneutic, a progressive revelation. Now, you have to define every stinking word this day and time. I don't mean progressive in the sense of moving to the left, of moving to liberal, but progressive in the sense that God will reveal a little more and a little more and a little more as you get through Scripture. Let me tell you, let me, let me tell you a thought I had this morning. Do you understand that you have more revelation than the prophet Isaiah had? He could see dimly through the midst and a virgin will conceive and have a child and she'll call his name Emmanuel. He, he got that. He saw that. He couldn't put all the pieces together. You've got more theology than Isaiah and Jeremiah had, than Ezekiel had, than David had. That's because progressively through Scripture, you get a little more and a little more and a little more. That's why at 40, you should be deeper in the things of God than when you were 30. And when you are 50, you should be deeper in the things of God than when you were at 40. And at 65, if you hadn't gotten anywhere, God help you. But that's what he comes to do right here. He says, I'm going to show you more of myself than I ever made clear back here to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. I am the God in the present. Now look, look at the text. Verse 4 is past tense. Verse 5 is uh, present tense. 4 is past tense. 5 is present tense. Here's verse 4. I also established in the past my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they sojourn. Verse five, present tense. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel. Now this is Victor Hamilton, uh, Old Testament professor for 35 years at Asbury. And uh, he's now at Brandeis when he wrote this commentary. So let me tell you, the guy should be an expert on Hebrew. And he says, verse five is present tense. Here in the present, God says, I hear their groaning. I hear their groaning. Because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, I have remembered my covenant. That remembered doesn't mean God was sitting there channel surfing and all of a sudden he came, oh, I better get back to the Hebrews. That's not what it is. It means that he remembers he's never had it slip out of his mind. 
It's never out of his mind. He has always known what was going on. He is always seeing what's happening with his people. Do you understand? God sees you always. You're never out of, you are never out of the mind of God. Now that doesn't mean that you're so special. It means that our God is that special. Our God is that special, that he doesn't let us little sinful urchins ever get off his mind. So he says this, I've heard them groaning. I hear them groaning, present tense, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. I have remembered. I know what I said to them. And you know what God is saying in all of that? I'm going to keep my covenant. The covenant that I swore in the past to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm about to unfold and bring about in the life of these groaning Hebrews right now. It's about to take place right here in the present. I am who I am. I am the Lord. I'm with you right now. I'm here. And I want you to see what God does. Now, will God do this? Let me, let me just put your finger right there in chapter 6 of Exodus. Go over with me to the little book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 21. Now, I'm going to give you time. Are you there? Okay. Joshua chapter 21 and verse 45. I want you to listen to what Joshua says. God brought him into the land just like he promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, just like he told them back there 40 years earlier in Egypt he was going to do. He brings them into the land. He brings them into the land of milk and honey. And listen to what he says through Joshua who led them in. Now, it's been 31 battles that they have won, 31 battles that they fought and won. God says, the land is yours now. And Joshua comes and says, not one of the good promises which the Lord has made to the house of Israel failed. It all came to pass. Every single promise God has given. Now just look over a chapter or two to chapter 23 of Joshua. And verse 14, Joshua is about to die. Gathers all of Israel together and he says this, now, behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. I'm dying. He brings congregation together and he says, listen, guys, I'm about to die. You know in all your hearts. Now, listen to what he said. You know this. You know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. That word in the Hebrew means to fall, to be fallen, to lie prostrate. Uh, to be down, face down on the ground. He says not one single promise ever fell to the ground. Every single one of them has been fulfilled. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Not one of them has fallen to the ground. 50 years old this year as a church, listen, let me tell you, I have no idea what, what those founders of this of Valleydale uh, felt like God promised them, but I want to tell you something. If God promised them something 50 years ago, I, I, want you to, I want you to hear this. Not one promise that God promised about Valleydale has ever failed. There you go. Not one promise that God promised this church has ever failed. There were days you thought you were done in. There were days you thought we wouldn't last another month, another two months, another three months. You didn't know where it was going to come from. You didn't know what was going to happen. Let me tell you something. Not one thing has failed that God promised this church. For the last 50 years, and now we're about to burn the note, 
that you thought, well, we, now, and we hadn't been in debt for 50 years. It may seem like that. And uh, I haven't been here 50 years, though it may seem like that too for you. But uh, not one thing that, the God, that God has promised this church. You know what he says? I'm the all-sufficient one. I'm there in the past, here in the present. I've revealed myself to you, and I am all-sufficient to bring about everything that I've said. That's the wisdom of God. That is the wisdom of God. That in the waiting, God, I I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what to do. And God has punched pause on everything. And everything is kind of suspended. And you're waiting for God to do something. And then God, listen, God says, this is who I am. In the midst of the waiting, learn to just trust in me. That's the wisdom of God. This is who I am. I'm all sufficient. Got it all worked out. Now, let me show you the second thing. And the second thing is this, is when God puts us on pause and we're waiting for him, listen, he wants to give us wisdom in the waiting about his plan. God has a plan. It's always a plan of redemption. Now, let me give you this quickly because I've got to, I've got to wrap this up. But let, So watch, pick it up in verse 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. Do you see that? Now watch this. Here is God's intention. You've got now what is called the seven I wills of God. Three are going to be in verse six, two in verse seven, two in verse eight. And he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. All of this is future tense. He's shown you now the past and the present. Now he's going to show you the future And he's given you seven I wills. This is what I will do in the days to come. So now look at this, because this is God's intention. In verse 6, I am the Lord. Now watch this. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now look at that. Just look at that verse. And look at what he said. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from, I will redeem you with. You see that? You can't look at me and be seeing it. Look in the text. I will bring you out. I will bring you out of those experiences of bondage. I will deliver you from those circumstances of bondage. I will also redeem you from the situation of bondage. Now, let me tell you, you can just circle this whole, I've got this whole thing underlined with about three different colors. I've got it in yellow, I've got parts of it in blue, parts of it in pink, and I want you to just, this is an important, do you see Jesus Christ in any of this? That Jesus comes to you and he says, from your sin, I will bring you out from your sin, thank God, because I can't get myself out of it. He says, I will deliver you from the circumstances of sin, and I will redeem you. I will buy you. I will purchase you with an outstretched arm from the results of sin. I will redeem you from it, buy you from it, take you out of it. And I love that expression of outstretched arm. You remember the great old hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms? Here is God saying, with an outstretched arm, I'm going to put my arm around you, and I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to buy you out of this. 
And it's a picture that leads to verse 7, which is the picture of the intimacy of God. Look at this intimacy in verse 7. Here's the wisdom of the intimacy of God. Then I will take you for my people. Does that sound like anything to you? It's, to me, this is what it sounds like, is I stood at an altar one day on a Sunday afternoon at four o'clock at the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, and I looked into the eyes, the biggest brown eyes I had ever seen, and I said, I will take you to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for rich and for poor, sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us according to God's holy ordinance, and therefore I pledge you my love. Now that's exact. You say, why does it sound like that? Because that's what it is. This is a marriage covenant right here. It sounds like a marriage covenant because that's what it is. God says, I will take you to be my lawfully wedded people, to have and to hold from this day forward. And God says, you will take me. I will be your God. And so here God is saying, we'll enter into, listen, when I got married, I didn't enter into a contract. I entered into a covenant. And, it, and, it, and, and in the whole thing, I never pledged anything about how I would feel. I pledged what I would do. And sister, I've done it. Amen? Amen. I pledged what I would do. You don't pledge what you feel. Man, when I was circling Birmingham the other day, I felt sick to my stomach. You know, you, your feelings change. When we landed in Huntsville, I felt like I was a, I felt like an angel, man. I could just fly on in myself. You know, thank the Lord. We got on the ground. He says this, I will take you for my, I will be your God. You will be, I will be your God. You will be my people. And look, he comes to the inheritance part. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. He says, I came and I married you to myself so that I would take you out of the house of bondage and you would come to my house. When I married her, I took her out of the desperate poverty and the terrible situation of the divorce, and I brought her into the glory of the Brunson household. That's what it was. That happened. That's what God's saying right here. I'm going to bring it. He says, look, I'm going to take you. Here's your inheritance. This is what I bring you to. Debbie's grandfather was a wealthy banker back in the 20s and the 30s. After the Depression and all, he, he owned a number of banks, had a lot of money. Uh, I don't know what happened to it. They, somebody spent it somewhere along the way. I didn't get any of it. Anyway, he built her grandmother a three-story plantation home as a surprise wedding gift. So they got married. She knew nothing of it. In the midst of, listen, about three or four, 5,000 acres of land, he built this huge home there for her white columns all the way up three stories, this big, beautiful home. And when they are married, he drives from the church now in front of the house and he says, welcome home. Do you understand? That's what God's saying right here to Israel. He says, you wed me and I'm taking you into my house. And it is a house and a land that flows with milk and honey. It is better than any land you have ever seen. There is nothing like it anywhere. 
He makes the same promise to us. He comes and he says, you wed yourself. You give yourself to me. Join, come and invite me into your heart. I will be your God. You will be my son or my daughter. And one day I will bring you to the house that I'm building. You haven't seen it. You don't know what it's like. You've been told that he's building it. And he says, one day I'm going to snatch you up and out of this world. And I'm going to walk you up to the front door of where you're going to live for eternity. Jiminy Cricket, if y'all were Pentecostal, y'all be running around this place right now. That's just good word. That's the Lord's promise to us. And he comes and he says this, I will bring you to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you as a possession. Why? I'm the Lord. The wisdom of God in the midst of the waiting. Now, let me just show you quickly. My time is way gone. In the midst of this, look, verse 9, I'll just point this out. I've told you all along that wisdom comes how? Listening to the word of God. Look at what is said. So Moses spoke to all the sons of Israel. They did not listen. They wouldn't hear it. Why? On account of their despondency and cruel bondage. They could not hear because they were enslaved to their slavery. They were in bondage to their bondage. They listened to their slavery and the voice of slavery and the voice of bondage more than they listened to the voice of God who said, I will take you out of this. Let me show you this. But God speaks again to Moses. And let me just give you the first word, go. You know, I don't have time to follow that out, but I want to tell you something. Part of what that is saying is this, is that even when you're not listening to God and you're not getting the wisdom of God that God wants you to get in the waiting, you're not listening doesn't stop his plan. Boy, I'm telling you, we need to be thankful for that. Doesn't stop his plan. I went to school with Erwin Lutz, not Erwin Lutz, Erwin McManus. Erwin um, McManus, um, very prolific writer. We were in an advanced preaching class together. Interesting guy, very quiet guy. Personally, he is uh, out in California. I think he's still pastoring. Uh, but good night, the books the guy has written. He's written so many books. But I love a story that he tells about his son, Aaron. He said that um, at five or six years of old age, Aaron came to him and said, Daddy, Daddy, what, what does it sound like when God speaks to you? And Erwin McManus said, I, I don't know. I, I didn't know how to explain it to him. So I didn't explain it to him. I just told I don't know. And uh, through the years, the boy grew and um, came to the middle school age, and he went off on his first middle school trip. Uh, first middle school camp with the church. And so they all went off. And Erwin uh, said about the middle of the week, he thought, I'll just drive up and see how, you know, middle school camp is going. See, check on Aaron, check on the youth guy and see what's going on, how it's going. He got up there and he said when he got to camp, he said he discovered, he heard that Aaron and another boy had had this huge blow up and they had to hold Aaron back from hitting this other kid. Preacher's kids, what can you say? Okay, 
And uh, he, he thought, well, golly, you know, what has Aaron gotten himself into? He said, so he went to see Aaron. He said, when Aaron saw him, he went into the cabin, threw all of his stuff in his bag, walked out to the car, threw it in his daddy's car and looked at him and said, I am not staying another minute here. I want to go home. And uh, Erwin said, okay, okay, oh, all right, we'll, we'll do that. But he said, would you do one thing for me first? And uh, Aaron said, what? He said, would you just talk to me? Can I talk to you about this? And he said, okay. So Erwin said he and Aaron walked off into the woods and found a rock and sat down on the rock. And he said, he asked him, he said, Aaron, do, let me just ask you, do you hear a voice deep down inside of you right now? And he said, Aaron nodded his head, yes. And he said, well, Aaron, do you know what that voice is saying to you? And he nodded his head, yes. He says, well, Aaron, what is that voice saying to you? And Aaron spoke up and he said, it's telling me I need to stay and work it out. And he said, well, Aaron, can you identify the voice? Do you know the voice that is speaking to you? And immediately Aaron said, yes, it's the voice of God. And Erwin said, that's the moment I'd been waiting on. I've been waiting for him to admit that. But he said, then he said something that took me back. It showed me how dug in he was. He looked at me and he said, but I'm not going to listen to the voice of God. So I explained to him, that's your choice. But this is what would happen. If he rejected the voice of God coming from deep within and chose to disobey his guidance, his heart would become hardened and his ears would become dull. If he continued on this path, there would be a day when he would never again hear the voice of God. There would come a day when he would deny that God even speaks or has ever even spoken to him. But if he treasures God's voice... However it comes to him, through the scriptures, through my conscience, and he responds to him with obedience, then his heart would be softened and his ears would always be able to hear the whisper of God into his soul. And Erwin said that Aaron stayed. Now, how about you? Then in the waiting, when we become frustrated and agitated and upset, and God has put everything on pause and we're waiting for him, and we wonder why that God is saying there is wisdom in my person and wisdom in my plan. If you will but listen to me. Are you listening? Do you hear that small voice on the inside? Are you listening? Is God speaking? Can you identify the voice? Can you identify the source? If it's God. Jesus said... He who has an ear, let him hear. Because if you say no, 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 long enough, you will eventually shut out the voice of God from your life.
even in the waiting, God is doing something. He's showing you the wisdom of who he is and his plan for your life. Let's stand. Is God speaking to your heart? Are you listening right now? If you've never trusted him as Lord and Savior, he will speak to your heart. I can't tell you for how long, but he will speak to your heart. And this morning, if you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in him, listen, trust him. Respond to him. Say, yes, Lord, speak. Some of you here this morning need to make that decision. Others of you need to come and be a part of this fellowship. God's been speaking to your heart. Some of you have got some issue in your life that you're struggling with and waiting for God to move. Come to the altar. Get on your knees. Humble yourself before the Lord. God admires, God loves those who will humble themselves before Him. Lord God, you're speaking to every one of us. I pray, Father, that we would listen. We would hear. That we would not shut your voice out. But we would say, yes, Lord, yes. To your will and to your way. Lord God, grant us courage. Grant us wisdom for the facing of this hour to respond in the way that you're calling us to respond. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Would you come? You slip out from wherever you are. You come right now, if you will, and make that decision. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.